like this idea that we're going to like, oh, you know, we don't have or we don't want to expend the resources to do what it would take to truly like protect everybody. Right. So we're going to do this like <laughs> this like batshit, you know, Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> invasion of Iraq, like light, you know, like risk stratified, versatile, agile, you know, protection of only the people that we determine to be the most vulnerable how innovative yeah who just you know who decides who is the most vulnerable like do we even really know who's the most vulnerable like Welcome to the Duff Panel. Today we've got a really fun interview. Uh, Phil and I sat down with a good friend of the show, Abby Cardis, to talk about herd immunity and some really bad takes by other epidemiologists. But first, I think we need to just take a bit of a second to talk about the CDC aerosolization back and forth that's happened. (laughs) It's as if it's as if we're back where we were one week ago talking about the fuckery of the CDC. <laughs> it's yeah. as if they uh, they listened to our episode and decided we'd like a sequel. <laughs> um, I think the, I mean, I think the mechanism by which this was like done, that was funny because I mean, so obviously what we're going to talk about is the CDC, how they basically last Friday said uh, they like quietly updated their guidelines page mm-hmm. to say that aerosol like to say that uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 could be transmitted via aerosolization via aerosolized particles mm-hmm. um, no one seemingly noticed this until like Sunday when people started posting about it and CNN ran something and then they very quickly turned around and said like nope website error yeah, on, like, on, on Monday. But you know, that's like you know, that's the like great thing about if you've ever like worked for government. It's like you know, you know, what's really easy to do is just you just upload that thing in there. They just let any be anybody be like a webmaster there. It's just like yeah. oopsies, <laughs> I yeah, accidentally posted I mean, my yeah, social security number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know, for everybody who uh, is familiar with uh, CSS and HTML you know that it's super easy to accidentally determine that COVID is aerosolized. It's it's literally one keystroke. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to like, I'm a CDC official. I'm just like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go by the Sony guidebook and just say that PlayStation 5 pre-orders <laughs> just went live by complete accident. Um, <laughs> I guess those aerosolization recommendations could have rolled out a lot smoother, huh? In, in my, in my professional opinion, uh, it was all almost worse because they were like oh that was a draft and it wasn't ready for public view yet so it's even more of like a bad faith acknowledgement of like yeah 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 we're we're there and we're looking into it but it should have it should have said that that we're planning on thinking about looking into this and planning on considering maybe adopting this as a thing and instead it just said that you know like sometimes that the velocity of a sneeze can produce an aerosol which is like Duh. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't so. it wasn't like completely like, you know, tipping over all of the agency's guidance before it was like literally actually not that huge of a change at all. But in this environment, it's like, 
Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, oh, got it. No, this is going to, no, this is going to be bad. We need more lockdowns. It's very bad. I mean, I think what's, um, what's kind of frustrating about this is that like, this also kind of happens in an environment where like, you know how like a, a week or so ago there was the, there, uh, or I guess more than a week now. Jeez. What is the time? Um, what is time? the news about the Bob Woodward book, um, uh-huh. dropped and it's become like a line for particularly like uh, liberals, but just in, in general, a lot of people who kind of have a pretty, I'd say like simplified understanding of how like virus actually like spreads or like actually an in, inaccurate probably understanding of like the difference between, for instance, like the term airborne versus like aerosolization um, mm-hmm. spread of particles. Like, cause like Trump said uh, to Woodward on the phone, I guess, uh, quote in, in February, quote, you just breathe the air and that's how it's passed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which everyone has taken to, to mean like, oh, they're hiding that COVID-19 spreads via aerosolized particles or something, or then saying like Trump knew it was airborne. Whereas if you actually like, you don't even have to really know much about this stuff. If you just look at like the World Health Organization's guidelines, let me just quote from the WHO, uh, (laughs) quote, airborne transmission of infectious agents refers to the transmission of disease caused by dissemination of droplet nuclei that remain infectious when suspended in air over a long distance in time. So yeah. everyone at that time was already saying it spreads via droplets, right? I mean, it's like, the way that it's used in, in colloquial terms versus in um, scientific terms is kind of different, right? But the thing that I think is really irresponsible here in particular in the framing is that, you know, ultimately the CDC's language previously, it said that COVID-19 spreads through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person cough, coughs, sneezes, or talks. Um, the update said that COVID-19 was spread through respiratory droplets or small particles such as those in aerosols produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, sings, talks, or breathes. So in a lot of ways, the, the actual expansion of the definition right? (laughs) To Mm -hmm. include this uh, airborne transmission was technically previously included in the (laughs) definition that they had before, right? Like there is functionally very little technical difference. And it, it, it relates more to the fact that there is a misconception, right? When we hear like, oh, you know, like there's droplets in the air, you're thinking of something called fomite transmission, which is like droplets on surfaces, Right. Like Mm -hmm. we're not thinking of like how the fact that droplets just circulate in the air or that when you like sneeze, it can be up to 100 miles per hour. I mean, like respiratory droplets are not as big as as they are visible. Right. No, I mean, in the the guidance and in the whole I mean, this is is part of where like the six foot thing like comes from, Mm -hmm. too, which is that like. I mean, I think it's a mischaracterization to say that uh, when you talk about droplets, people are think are actually thinking fomites or whatever. I think that I think that the the recommendations that have been like I guess over suggestive of surface transmission mm-hmm. and under suggestive of the possibility of aerosolization. I mean, I, I think an easy way to think about this is just so you know, dro- droplets are not necessarily like visible, but you know, they're like essentially moisture and like infectious virus and like whatever cells and stuff uh, coming mm-hmm. out of your mouth mucus or nose or out of, yeah, out of like mucous membranes. Um, and that, that can like circulate in the air. But this is why like, you know, the guidance said uh, th- this is why it hinges so much on close contact, like being in close proximity to mm-hmm. someone for a long time, because the idea is that if you are 
speaking to someone back and forth in close quarters for a long period of time that like you're, you know, significantly more likely to, to spread it or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. The fear around aerosolization is that like it is essentially that like those droplets or whatever could get like further fragmented and carry on really small particles, which is essentially uh, like on aerosols, which on one hand, yes, there are not totally conclusive studies on aerosolized transmission as in like aerosolized infection mm-hmm. um at the moment like mostly what those studies show is the the presence of fragments of uh SARS-CoV-2 RNA being contained mm-hmm. in aerosolized particles and it's not totally known whether those are like wh- whether those are uh like significant carriers for vectors of infection in fact some virologists do say that like that basically like you would know if it were if aerosolization were a significant transmission vector because it would be a lot more like the measles and like mm-hmm. it would be way like there would be a much higher um rate of infection like what's called an mm-hmm. r naught or whatever but but the 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 problem is that like for instance you know you bring up the surface transmission thing the problem is ultimately that like the cdc guidelines for surface transmission which are which have about the same level of backing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um in terms of like indeterminacy actually as to whether it, it like it is a significant vector of transmission obviously we know that droplets are like if you if you go up and yell at someone in the face or something and you have covid that's a very obvious like you, you know uh transmission vector we know there's evidence of that but we don't necessarily know about surface transmission um whereas mm-hmm. like i mean i think what you what you see here is like if it if the guidelines do then go down to aerosolization i feel like the the reason that they are resisting that so much, even though that would be about the same level of, uh, you know, proof required as, as they're doing for the guidelines for surface transmission. Like if they were going to change that, um, it would just have so much bigger ramifications for the political economy in it general. Would or really, like, you, know, you know, quote unquote, interfere with Trump's plans to reopen schools. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to reopen no, schools. No, you wouldn't or at all because it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, even if you had like, um, let's say a, a class where y- you said, for COVID precautions, the whole class is going to be taught non-verbally or something, so no one's allowed <laughs> to speak. You still can create aerosols through breathing. You can mm-hmm. still create droplets and put droplets out into the air, whether you're showing symptoms or not, mm-hmm. right? Which can infect other people. Well, beyond that, it, the implications just for like all of the workplaces, say stores that have already, you know, that are that are non-essential that have already reopened with the yeah restaurants with the um like understanding that you know if if uh like people in a workplace stay six feet away from each other and wear masks when they're inside that that is enough of a of a precaution to you know mitigate spread you know would be false and that would mean that like a bunch of a bunch of workplaces like that have already reopened would have to close like i don't i don't fully know what the policy implications of that guidance would be i mean like it's not clear to me like i i don't know that it's it's clear to me that uh there would even be a a uniform interpretation of it i mean like think Mm -hmm. about it this way look at the guidance we do have and then think about the way that that guidance has been interpreted, right? (laughs) Right. Like, it's not clear to me that like you do this and you, you like completely, you know, you know, we're, we're at a completely different position and like the Atlanta fed has to change its models of GDP for quarter three. I mean like, but 
I, God but forbid. I think it's like, it's no, cause I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's economic risk necessarily. I think it's, I think it is uh political risk mm-hmm. that's, that's driving it. Cause there's, cause there's a way of messaging this where, you know, you don't necessarily see, see major, major changes uh, in practice, but you see sort of like retrofitting and things like that. But that's not even that isn't tolerable because the point is not even to not, to, you know, to like uh, say the point is really not about aerosolization. The point is about like any of this guidance being taken seriously at all. I mean, the, the ideal yeah. The, the ideal world for the administration and, and their implicit tacit policies we sort of talk about with Abby in the interview mm-hmm. is a kind of uh, herd immunity <laughs> approach. Hmm. And so like anything, like if you put aerosolization, it just does sort of move the football like down, uh, down the field a little bit in, you know, not in the direction that they want it uh, to go. But ultimately it's, it, it's telling to me that this like whole sort of draft the draft gate i don't know if you want to call it that (laughs) like came a week after there was another thing about the cdc uh releasing uh, updating its guidance that it had uh you know refused to publish for a long time about uh asymptomatic Mm -hmm. uh spread and the need for asymptomatic people to be uh tested so much And, and like these things came so close on the heels of one another that i wouldn't be surprised if when people were thinking about whether or not to revise their uh, testing strategies, that uh, they might think that, uh, oh, actually, they, they, they re- rescinded that draft of the new testing strategy guidance, which they haven't. But they came so close together that the, the, the issue with trust and like consistency oh. and reliance just like bleeds over from issue to issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, ultimately, like, you know whether or not it's aerosolized should have no bearing on our response, right? Like either way, like as we talk about with Abby, like either way, like there is, um, you know, a best response to this and this does not involve, you know, letting as many people as possible become infected. That is a losing strategy and that will result in more people dying than, um, have to die. As we say constantly, these are not deaths pulled from the future. These are not preordained. These are intentional decisions that people are making for political reasons, which are resulting in actual people losing their lives. Individuals, Mm -hmm. human beings, not just, you know, um, constituencies or whatever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, to to pick up something from from Phil's point, though, I I do think to a degree... While while it's one thing to say, you know, I, I don't know how much impact this would actually have on overall reopening strategies or or on um, on you know you know what, what like businesses opening or or companies like whether it's like individual company decisions or like decisions made by I don't know people like governors or or whatever mm-hmm. who who are in charge of um, who like who who have taken on the mantle of like rolling out a bunch of the like reopening strategies or whatever. I do think still though. You know, as we've talked about before, it does have a really powerful um, social, sort of like social reproductive function within the public at large, mostly because like one of the things that people, what you know, again, whether it's like people who are officials in some capacity or uh, are, you know, managing something for a business or people who are just like, you know, your average like lay person or whatever, mm-hmm. the like the number one thing that people, at least in the United States, um, 
tend to be referencing is like, well, according to the CDC, like, mm-hmm. well, we're, we're following CDC guidelines. And that extends, in my opinion, to like people doing stuff like, you, you know, going and doing like outdoor dining or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever, like the the ridiculousness, for example, of the like, I, I think a lot of the reason to to roll this back is not just the stuff that we've talked about um, just a, just a moment ago, but also the primacy of like, no, no, no we're just going to keep the six foot rule. Because mm-hmm. like, despite the fact that as we know, and as we've talked about for, for, for months in cold, humid conditions, as we're going to see in a lot of places in the fall in the US and throughout the world, like in cold, humid conditions, virus droplets, like not even aerosolized particles, but droplets can carry like 20 feet. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, to admit something like that in the documents that are sort of like, you know, looked at as the... <laughs> somehow perplexingly looked at as this like coming from the provenance of like this depoliticized agency despite the fact that our very last episode we talked about (laughs) at length uh michael caputo's um you know like uh uh, tenure at the cdc well i guess he's still there he's just on a leave of absence he is my new favorite boatman yeah but his (laughs) his like tenure at the cdc his short tenure being one of like making like assuring that um uh, the as much as possible, um, mm-hmm. these things can be like held back or reined in to to like obviously for political reasons, and then also to sort of for political reasons keep people from sort of panicking or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you right. know this to I mean you know I I just like I think of for example all the you know, not even to talk about the the ridiculousness of like indoor dining that uh, is supposed to be allowed soon in like New York under specific certain circumstances, but, um, the ridiculousness of even, you know, the many people that we like pass on the street when we're like going out on an errand or something who are just like Mm -hmm. clustered in tiny little like outdoor dining booths. Like none of them have masks on and everyone's like acting like it's okay because they're outside and Mm -hmm. like family clusters or whatever, groups of people together, are like sometimes almost six feet away from each other as though that's all that you need. You know, it's like my favorite is when you see a group of four people who clearly don't live in the same household because maybe they say have four strollers among them as well, (laughs) where they're sitting together on a picnic blanket outdoors sharing food that's in the middle of the four of them with their masks down. But when you walk past them, they pull their mask up. Yeah. I mean, another I mean, another way of thinking about it, right, is that guidelines have a they have a sort of double function. Guidelines are not only serving a governance function in the present of telling people what to do or reflecting a, an elected government's tolerance for risk. In one sense, they are that. In one sense, that's the same. Financial regulations are in many ways the same thing. They, they, they reflect government's tolerance for a certain level of, of risk. Mm-hmm. They are also, however, a an acknowledgement of what government did or what its actions were in the past. Uh, they, right. If you adopt a certain set of guidelines or standards uh, in the present, you have to admit to some extent, like when the civil rights act was adopted, it's like to some extent it required a repudiation rhetorically of a regime that existed before it. Right. Mm-hmm. The reason like one thing that. And you're seeing it, I think, in a lot of different places. And it's I I don't mean to say that this is like exclusive to the Trump administration. There is a lot of desire to say, for one reason or other, that like we have been doing the best that we can. 
We've been doing all that we can. And what we did before was, you know, in, in some way, you know, acceptable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those guidelines function to help preserve that, um, that sense of the past. And that's, you know, so, and, and I think that like, when we see new guidelines adopted, they will a- attempt to reconcile that uh, history or the history of the present right now. Yeah. Right. Uh, because it, it had to have been, it had to have been this way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just yeah. leave it here. Cause that actually, um, really leads in well to our conversation with, um, Abby Cardis, which is coming up next. Really good. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron, patreon.com slash death panel pod. And we'll catch you next time. so much for joining us i'm so excited oh yeah thank you for having me it's uh my pleasure long overdue oh my god um (laughs) all right we are joined by the one and only abby cardis who is a phd candidate in perinatal epidemiology um we've got abby on to talk about a bunch of stuff but among other things herd immunity and the kind of bad faith arguments that are being made right now by epidemiologists who are claiming that Basically, from a class perspective, herd immunity is just um, the only just and equitable approach that we have to dealing with the virus, (laughs) which for the record, it is not. Um, Abby, welcome to the panel. It is such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, we've wanted to have you on for some time. And and it's, you know, I, I follow your Twitter assiduously because there's there's all of these like debates in epidemiology that, you know, I, I feel like I miss half of the import of them because I don't speak epidemiologist and <laughs> it's like really happy to have your, uh, your translations. <laughs> I open my mouth and just like a regression model comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe for the sake of accessibility and because I think actually a lot of people are not totally clear on exactly what an epidemiologist does in studies. Do you think you could give people like the 10,000 foot view of what your field in general is? Like what is an epidemiologist? If, if, if you're telling it to someone who um, is a little confused about maybe what the difference between like a virologist, a doctor and epidemiologist is. Sure. So basically the 10,000 foot view epidemiology is like a really heterogeneous um, field. So it kind of contains a lot within it. But the 10,000 foot, 30,000 foot view is um, that epidemiologists study the distribution and kind of the determinants of diseases in a population. So that's different from a doctor who studies you know, who treats patients individually and maybe studies, you know, like the pathology of some kind of disease, like in an individual person's body. The object of study for epidemiologists is populations rather than individuals. And that's different from a virologist, which I really think of as um, more of like a lab scientist or a bench Mm -hmm. scientist, right? Like trying to understand, you know, the Mm. structure and behavior of viruses at 
like a subcellular or a molecular level. So, you know, basically epidemiologists study disease in populations and there's a lot, you know, kind of within that. So you can be an infectious disease epidemiologist who studies, you know, pandemics like COVID-19. You can be a perinatal epidemiologist like I am. So I study um, severe, and I'm sorry that this language is like very gendered in my field, but um, I study severe maternal morbidity and mortality. So like maternal deaths in the U.S. and what kind of the population determinants of, you know, maternal morbidity are. Um, you can be like an applied epidemiologist, you know, and do actual kind of outbreak investigation for a local health department or the CDC um, or disease surveillance and things like that. And I mean, that's, those are just three very broad examples. Right. Epidemiologists do and study a lot. <laughs> yeah. I've even heard of, um, people who are, uh, biophysicists, epidemiologists who want, I read a paper the other day that was hilarious, which uh, posited that every single coronavirus uh, infection was coming from people being um, hit with meteorites that contained a, um, a viral agent from space. So Whoa. it's more, that, you know, I like to say to people some that like, like history of science shit, that's like some, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> It, it was it's an interesting it's a it's a it's a paper that's a good laugh. Maybe we'll cover it on the show if we get a slow <laughs> week or something. Um, but yeah, I like to think of epidemiologists as the people who really like look at data and look at how things move through the population and try and sort of analyze how how diseases and, and other factors which contribute to disease um, sort of work in everyday life, which, you know, means that there is obviously, as you said, Abby, there is a really broad purview that epidemiology covers. But during this pandemic, it's become obviously like very forefronted as something that people are are turning to epidemiologists as certified experts for guidance. Um, yeah, yeah, which is for problematic. Sure. <laughs> it's a uh, it's really funny because I mean, it's kind of like a joke in public health that before this, you know, I would tell people, you know, like, oh, what do you study? And I'd say epidemiology. And they'd say, oh, so you're like a skin doctor, right? <laughs> now all of a sudden everyone, everyone knows like what epidemiology kind of is. And it's uh, it's pretty intense. It's like a weird time <laughs> to be <laughs> in this field. Yeah, they, they know enough for the knowledge to be dangerous, right? Like it's just yeah. to, like to just know one is like the you know to just know like oh I'm gonna just use this term herd immunity. Um, not really know much about it, but just say, you know, we need, we need some good old fashioned herd immunity, just like we used to do. Yeah. So earlier this week, there was an interview that came out, um, <laughs> and that was kind of the inciting incident for, for this, uh, conversation was I DM'd Abby, like, what the fuck? Oh my <laughs> God. Um, and this was an interview in Jackman with two Harvard professors named Catherine Yee and Martin Kuldorf, um, of course, Harvard Medical School. But in it, they made some shocking claims, which are actually quite common arguments. The biggest issue I sort of have with with this is that the idea of this interview was sort of centered around the fact that lockdowns are class warfare, almost. Um, and it, it the, the interview almost reads as if it's like a memo or, or meeting minutes from like a meeting of the American Eugenics Society in 1918. <laughs> I mean... Much of the rhetoric, uh, as Abby and I were talking about, sort of reminds us of death panel fave, like Zeke Emanuel, who famously thinks that people should not live after the age of 70 because the quality of life is not the same 
Um, but, you know, I thought maybe we could sort of get into this interview and talk through some of, in particular, like Kuldorf's points. Um, and yeah. maybe one thing that we can start with is a claim that Kuldorf makes that there is no scientific or public health rationale to close daycare centers, schools, or colleges. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there is. <laughs> I don't know. I think that that claim is just like really, really <sighs> irresponsible. I can like feel my heart rate <laughs> spiking, like just thinking about it. So the problem with that is that, you know, COVID-19 is transmitted. It's like a, a respiratory virus, right? So it's basically transmitted by people breathing and coughing mm -hmm. on each other. And there is, you know, quite a bit of evidence that closed indoor spaces facilitate transmission sort of more easily. And so, you know, you can think that having a bunch of children sitting together in a classroom, you know, if one of these if one of those children picks up the virus somewhere, you know, they could easily spread it to their classmates. And, you know, children aren't the only people in schools. They could easily spread it to their teachers, right? Like they could bring it home to their families. Um, I think like a lot of what's missing in Kuldorf's point here is that people live in households. And I know that he is like an infectious disease modeler, but you know, human beings aren't just like dots in a simulation, right? Like we live in a complex <laughs> social structure. Um, and like people, you know, people live in households. And I don't know why that is contra. I mean, I don't think the point is controversial. And I don't understand like why in the interview, that point is like completely elided, you know, that people live in households, that people have these like complex <laughs> structures of interaction with one another. And, you know, I don't think the claim that children, you know, there is a steep age gradient in mortality from COVID-19, right? Like older people right. we see are much more likely, you know, to have severe um, disease and, you know, to die from the virus. But people at younger ages, their death rate is not zero. Right. And, you know, there are these long-term consequences that are just kind of beginning to be understood. You know, like, I don't know anything about the long-term symptoms. And it seems like the science on them is still kind of coming in. But, you know, I think it's really irresponsible to just say, you know, oh, young, <laughs> young kids are, are not at risk. It's fine. Right. Like they can, you know, young people are not at risk. It's fine. They can just be exposed to this virus. And, and like, that's okay. You know, it's not okay because, you know, children have died from this virus. People can have these long-term severe um, consequences after infection. So that really doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. And I think it really, yeah, it just ignores how, it ignores how complex our society actually is. And I think it's like, I don't know, I think it's quite contrary to the spirit of public health to say that, <laughs> you know, like we basically like you protect the vulnerable by protecting everybody, right? right? It is like, right. it is not public health to say like, oh yeah, well, <laughs> everyone up to age 65 you know, like you can go ahead and get COVID, like, fuck you. I don't care. Yeah. You know, we're just going to quote unquote, protect the vulnerable, which I don't even know how that would actually happen. Like we can get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> the sticks of how they should. Think this kind of stratified lockdown would actually work. But 
you know, we don't do this with other diseases. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I wouldn't say like, oh, you know, there's, I said this on Twitter and I'm sorry that I'm going to repeat it here, but we wouldn't say, oh, there's like a very steep age gradient <laughs> in deaths from tuberculosis. <laughs> and so, you know, tuberculosis is endemic in some parts of the world. It's really not worth trying to control it. So, you know, young people buck up, like take on a little bit of extra risk. It's, you know, it's whatever, like just go out there and get tuberculosis so that we can protect older people. And it's like, what? what right the the thing that the thing that like I, I guess sort of confused me when i read this you know and i'm not you know an epidemiologist or a virologist so i was like is there are they talking are they speaking bad faith or is there something that i just don't understand because i'm not part of the tribe um but like it, it occurred to me that like we are now seeing all of these spikes in wisconsin that are you know <laughs> located specifically in places where there are universities. Uh, we are definitely seeing, um, I mean, there are even like stories now. There was one in the paper this morning about like parents sending their kids to school, not actually reporting in that they're positive and then teachers getting infected. I mean, like mm -hmm. it, they're saying effectively that it, it, it's not that by uh, leaving these things, leaving these institutions open, uh, for in-person instruction or whatever, that the virus won't spread. They're just saying it, it, it'll spread, but it won't matter that much. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that's essentially it, right? Like they are essentially arguing that COVID-19 is, you know, going to be a, a disease like seasonal flu or, you know, like other um, viruses of the coronavirus family, which cause like the common cold. Right. Right. And they're just saying like, oh, this is going to be with us forever. So everyone just needs to get sick um, to get us to this point of, you know, what they call herd immunity, which, you know, I, the, the interviewees assume that like herd immunity is an inevitability, which I don't think is actually true because if you look to other, you know, if you look to other countries, they have successfully suppressed the virus, right. And like, it's not spreading, you know, in New Zealand or, you know, Vietnam or, Taiwan or whatever, because they suppressed the virus with a full lockdown, right? Like if the virus is not in the population, then, you know, people aren't going to get it. Right. And you can, you can do suppression like that, you know, with the proper measures and like those, you know, those countries don't have herd immunity. You know, they don't have a majority, you know, 70% of their population or whatever that have antibodies to COVID-19, mm -hmm. you know, and they're able to control cases as they you know, as they Arise. emerge. Right. So this like insistence that the only way that we're going to get through this is just like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, 70 to 80% of the population needs to be literally infected with COVID is, I just don't buy it, that that's what has to happen for us to kind of move past this pandemic, right? Like right. we could protect everyone if we had the political will and the public health capacity, but we don't have either and we don't care. Right. Um, and it's weird that the interviewees don't get into the reasons for why we don't have either of those things and just kind of like floor it with like, well, <laughs> you just need to like buck up, assume your assume risk, you know, do your part. Fuck you. Like, yeah. Like we'll put, you know, your grandparents in an internment camp for the elderly or something to. <laughs> well, there's a number of assumptions that are sort of being made um, in their arguments, which if you I'm I am a I'm a lay person. Right. But I have a vested interest in um, staying up to date on the latest research in immunology because I have a rare disease. And so I have to 
work very closely with my team to uh, sort of work together to coordinate my care because, you know, when you have a rare disease, you are off book, right? There is no research Mm -hmm. about your disease. You have to read other medical studies, make inferences and see if you can apply the same principles to um, the rare disease case. Right. So, you know, there are there are so many things that we don't understand about how the immune system works. There are so many things that we don't know about how coronavirus uh, or this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, interacts with the immune system in the long term. We don't know if antibodies are long lasting or if they're quick to degrade. We can't say one way or another if people getting the disease protects them from reinfection. And it's becoming more and more likely that it doesn't. Right. Um, Right. And so I think this like gets to something really interesting, like an interesting, maybe contradiction, which is you're right. Like it's the, the picture about, you know, how long, you know, immunity, it seems, you know, pretty clear, I think at this point, and I'm not totally up on all the immunology. It seems pretty clear that, you know, there is some immunity that is conferred as a result of being infected with the virus. Um, it's not clear how long it lasts. Um, you know, if you think about like, you know, the common cold, you know, you get, you get colds, you know, year after year. And there are some, you know, where you get, you know, you get sick and it confers, you know, you get antibodies that confers immunity for some amount of time, you know, like maybe partial immunity, whatever. I think that that kind of thing is not well understood yet as far as um, COVID-19 is concerned. But it's interesting because in the interview and, you know, Martin Kulldorff on his Twitter has (laughs) claimed, you know, that COVID-19, it's just going to be endemic, right? So rather than being like, well, I don't know. I don't want to get into what I maybe think he means about this, but he seems to be arguing that it's not really worth, he said on Twitter, it's not worth doing testing, tracing, and isolating because (sighs) this is just endemic and it's going to be with us. It's going to be with us forever. But I find that hard to square with like this idea of a herd immunity strategy, which assumes that like there is durable, you know, and long lasting immunity that is conferred as a result of being infected. And so I don't know, I was reading that and I was reading the interview and I was just kind of like, oh, so you just like, don't think this is worth it. Like you just don't think it's worth yeah. preventing people from getting sick. That's, that's fine. That's, like, just say that, you know, right. like, that's, fine. that's, that's actually the sort of weirder, more unstated thing, which is that like, there are all of these, you know, arguments about like this, you know, what we're, what we're doing now is um, like, class warfare and (laughs) like it's uh you know there are all of these these costs to uh you know what they refer to as like major lockdown which i I don't really know like i wonder if they're sort of like living in the in the modeling world because i I don't know if you go out on the street like we are not in lockdown in the united states like no no one would call what we're doing anywhere close to what any European country did during like, I, I don't know if like that's just like their experience. Like they're more familiar with those European cases and they just think that's going on in the United States and they don't go outside. Let's be but, honest. Like, they it's, think that's what's going it's on. It's cherry picking. It's cherry picking. It has oh, it's to be cherry picking. Yeah, there is not. I mean like what we have done. So like, yeah, what we've done is not even remotely close to like an actual lockdown. And I just have to, I just have to wonder if what's animating this is like, I'm sick of being at home. I'm sick of watching my kids. Like I'm too important for this. (laughs) I don't want to do it. Like time to open schools, whatever. Like everyone's just going to get sick. But I wish, I wish that, yeah, if you're going to just argue that it's not worth it, 
to prevent more transmission, more infections and more deaths. Just say that like they're they're using the working class truly as like a human shield to be like, oh, well, this is harming the working class the most like this. You know, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Mm -hmm. Um, But like missing is any acknowledgement that, you know, yes, I mean, lockdown, (laughs) quote unquote, lockdown, you know, quarantining, whatever it is that we're doing in the United States. And it's not clear that there really is like, there's not like an infection control strategy in the United States, (laughs) right? There's like the restaurant lobby that's just kind of like pressing neurons in Donald Trump's brain (laughs) to like (laughs) control his limbs or whatever. But, um, (laughs) you know, there's, um, we did do some amount of social support, you know, with the unemployment insurance that Bernie was able to get into the bill. And of course, like, you know, it's not complete, you know, the unemployment system is a nightmare or whatever, but I, you know, I buy that the, the force of, you know, pandemic restrictions, uh, is falling more heavily on, you know, working class people and poor people. But what's missing from the interview is like, you know, so is like having to go to work through like a, an uncontrolled pandemic, yeah, <laughs> right? Like that, you know, the the very working class that he's holding up as, or that the interviewees are holding up as the reason why, you know, we, we have to open schools right away are, you know, the same people that are going to, you know, high risk frontline jobs where, you know, they're much more likely to be exposed to the virus. So, you know, that's missing from the interview. And like, they didn't, they certainly didn't talk to anybody, right. you know, who's working in any of these professions because the, you know, there have been some labor actions by the working class, you know, for stricter safety measures, right. And stricter, um, sort of like pandemic control measures. And that is all like totally, totally missing from that interview. And so I, I just, I think it's a really, um, I think it's a really, really cynical use of, you know, working class people who are actually people, right. Who are actually suffering terribly through this like awful mass casualty event that like we as a country have just decided that it's not worth doing anything about. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know, like we're not doing a full lockdown. If we did a full lockdown, it would take four to six weeks, (laughs) right. To suppress the virus at least instead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, four to six weeks, maybe eight weeks. What I'm like, not a long time. You know, if we could keep every person in the U.S. at home, you right. know, we could have, you know, we could have had this over with in the spring. And instead, we're trapped in this miserable, you know, indefinite, you know, we're on month seven now, you know, and the, the virus is still circulating at high levels, right? Like hotspots are still popping up all over the country. Oh, I mean, because we are just not every, committed to doing what it would take. Every single county is like about to experience also the worst budget crisis it's ever faced right. too. Mm-hmm. Like uh, on top yeah. of that, we have like numerous socioeconomic factors which are not taken into consideration here. Some of them are given lip service. They mention that like evictions are a problem. But Abby, as you pointed out, like the idea of the household also seems totally absent in their arguments and does in many of the other like right wing attacks on the idea of like, um, you know, endemic suppression. Right. Because to be honest, like I'm a layperson, Right. But you know what, if you're a virologist or a clinician and you disagree with me on this point, send me an email because listeners, I think what you need to take as a given is that, yes, it's been seven months, which is a long time, but within like 
a clinic from a clinical research perspective, that is no time at all. Most people researching the disease right now, maybe their children will understand SARS-CoV-2. Like we don't know, we have not been studying this for long enough to be sure about anything. So you cannot claim that that herd immunity is the way to go if we don't even understand what type of immunity is conferred from being infected. In this interview, they claim over and over that what we really need to do is take people with antibodies and put them in the workforce. Like, Without acknowledging okay. the fact that that will also send the same demographics that they're claiming are being harmed by the lockdown because they're still having to go to work back to work because who the fuck do you think has antibodies right now? But the people who have already been working on the front lines. Yeah, well, I think to your point, you know, seven months isn't a long time to like understand the virus, but doing, you know, suppression of a respiratory virus is not a very high tech Mm -mm. like phenomenon, right? Like we have, we have the technology to, to totally suppress this virus in a short amount of time. And we just don't want to. And it is wild to me that, you know, someone on quote unquote, the left could look at what's happening and say, oh yeah, like evictions really bummer about that. But what we really need to do is just send all children back to primary school, like immediately, like that'll solve everything, right? It's kind of missing. I don't know what the metaphor is that I want to use, but it's like, it's a very confused way of looking at this. Um, Because you could look at this and say, you know, well, why is it that, you know, grocery stores remained open? Like, why is it that we reopened bars and restaurants so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. You know, like what are the, what are, what's the incentive structure that our, you know, government basically is responding to? Like, why is it that we don't have testing capacity? Why is it that hospitals don't have enough PPE? But instead of looking at all of that, they're just saying like, eh, well, <laughs> this seems, this seems hard. Kids aren't at risk. Just like let her rip. They should be whatever. fine. Like, yeah. Sort of my question is like, what, what exactly is going on here in their thinking? So like one, one possibility is like, as you said before, they're just, they don't like the current state of things. They're annoyed by it. I mean, another possibility is they, you know, just there's a, they're trying to solve what is fundamentally like a problem of political economy with, with epidemiology, which is a problem. Or that's the epidemiology special. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about, can you talk about like what's going on there and their sort of like epistemology? Um, well, okay. So I feel like there are two kind of directions that this can go in, but I think, you know, this idea of stratified lockdown is very, very funny to me because, you know, we've not ever had a nationwide lockdown in this country. Um, and on the one hand, you have these interviewees saying, well, you know, this is really an endemic infection. Everyone's overreacting to it. It's not that dangerous. It's just not worth, you know, all the costs to our economy. And, you know, as they say, insultingly, they're like working class kids need to be in school so they don't fall behind. <laughs> um, you know, so they say it's like it's too, you know, costly in all of these social ways to try to control the virus. But then on the other hand, they're like, oh, well, we'll just do an age stratified lockdown and we'll just lock down, you know, all people over the age of 65 and everyone else go about your business, except, you know, if you're high risk. And I'm just like thinking about 
okay, so <laughs> you're looking at this and you're seeing that we don't have the political capacity, you know, the public health capacity or the political will to do a full lockdown. And so you're saying it's not worth it. But then on the other hand, what you're actually proposing would be like a fucking logistical nightmare, right? Like, can you imagine, like, I'm just trying to imagine how this would go to get your like certification for lockdown, right? Like if you're a high risk person who's under 65, right? Like, can you imagine having to call up like fucking Aetna or whatever? And be like, oh, I need, I need documentation, oh you know, of my high risk condition of my like underlying, you know, health condition. And then, you know, getting that documentation and then submitting it to, I don't know where, like your state's, you know, <laughs> your, your county public health department with its like COBOL system, right. <laughs> just like creaking under the weight <laughs> of all of these applicants. Like, I just can't imagine how, I can't imagine how that would actually work. I mean, it's, I think it's like, I think it's like morally and ethically very suspect to propose something like this, but I also think logistically it would be kind of impossible given what we have. But I think that like this idea of like, like stratification is really reflective of a lot of thinking in epidemiology, right? Like we love like a risk stratification score, mm. you know, like we love to like calculate individual people's risk based on, you know, all of their characteristics and their demographics mm. and you know, mm. where they live and whatever. And it's like, you know what, can you just fucking give us healthcare? You know, <laughs> instead of like, you know, can we just like have healthcare maybe? And like, I feel like epidemiology is like in many ways kind of decoupled from any sort of realistic, like public health mission. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could attribute this quote properly. I don't remember who said this, but someone called epidemiology, like performing surgery on equations. And that oftentimes <laughs> is what it really, you know, feels like is that, um, you know, science in general and epidemiology are very like, they operate in kind of a biomedical framework and what we would call like a methodological individualism framework, mm. right? Like where the individual is treated as like the unit of analysis, complex social phenomena are really just aggregations of individuals, you know, biologies, choices, behaviors, whatever. Um, and I think that like this, this kind of thinking, which is like very, very common in epidemiology. And it's certainly like how I've been, you know, trained to think about things. And it's certainly how, you know, the methodological tools that I've been trained to use kind of, uh, operate and, you know, kind of see the world. Um, it's very, very common in epidemiology and it's kind of finding its expression in <laughs> like this insistence that, you know, we can, we can risk stratify everyone perfectly. We can target, you know, our interventions, you know, down to the person, you know, like absolutely perfectly, whatever. And it's, that's just, to me, that's not yeah. really how public health works. And like, if I can give, this is annoying to like hearken back to something that I tweeted like in March. <laughs> no, please <laughs> um, do. <laughs> but like when all of this first started, I was thinking about this. So like the, the canonical kind of epidemiology tale is, John Snow and like the cholera, uh, you know, the cholera epidemic in London. I don't even, I don't even know what years it was, but like, I'm trying to think about how like modern, you know, or contemporary epidemiologic thinking would fit in to kind of that um, situation. Right. So the idea, and like, I don't know how apocryphal <laughs> all of this like story is, but you know, John Snow, there was a cholera epidemic in London and John Snow you know, figured out that, you know, most of the cholera infected water 
was coming from I don't know a certain segment of the t- of the Thames or something. I'm like I'm totally not. Oh, oh like, was up this on these- the um the creation of the double blind? That was 1854, I think. Basically, the story is like the Broad Street pump in London was pumping out water that was like infested with cholera and making tons of people sick, right? So there are like three ways that you can kind of think about how to intervene on that, right? Like one way is to centralize water treatment for all of London, right? right. Like every every household, every dwelling gets like municipal water that has been treated, like perfect, no cholera, right? Like another way of dealing with it is what Jon Snow supposedly actually did. Again, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, which is just like to take the handle off the pump, right? Like so <laughs> no one can get the water, right? Like you have to go somewhere else to get water. And I feel like a lot of what contemporary epidemiology would do to approach a situation like that is to hold, I don't know, like a thrice weekly um, educational intervention for people that have been enrolled in like this study (laughs) or this trial, you know, where they come after work and you sit and you listen to a presentation about what cholera is, the risks of cholera for you and your family, Mm. you know, like steps and behaviors that you can take. A pamphlet, probably. Yeah, to avoid someone being checks infected. in with you every day afterwards. Like, yeah, that you're like not using the water pump that's like still there, <laughs> right? Like that you're not like drinking this like untreated water from this pump that's still there. And like, I think I'm like seeing I'm, now that I've said all this, I don't know if it's super relevant. So maybe you can just like totally cut it out. But like, <laughs> I'm seeing. I feel like I'm seeing like the expression of a lot of this like very, very um, individualist, you know, like particularist approach to public health. And there's even, you know, there's like a field, like a, maybe a nascent field out there called quote unquote precision public health, which I think is hilarious. Ugh. But you know what I mean? Like this it's idea. Like oxymoron. Yeah. Like this idea that we're going to like, oh, you know, we don't have, or we don't want to expend the resources to do what it would take to truly like protect everybody. Right. So we're going to do this like <laughs> this like batshit, you know, Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> invasion of Iraq, like light, you know, like risk stratified, versatile, agile, you know, protection of only the people that we determine to be the most vulnerable. How but innovative. Like, okay, well, who de- yeah. Who, de- you know, who decides who is the most vulnerable? Like, do we even really right. know who's the most vulnerable? Right. Like the process by which data about a person's, you know, vulnerability or susceptibility to COVID-19 the process by which that data comes into being is like very fraught, you know what I mean? And mediated by like all of these, you know, public and private actors and things. And so I don't know, like I, (laughs) I responded to, or I, I like tagged Martin Kulldorff and I was just like, okay, well, who do you think is acceptable to expose to this virus? And he said, oh, well, no one, you know, just like with, just like yeah. with traffic accidents. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, good thing. You know, we don't have seatbelts. We don't have speed limits. <laughs> you know, we don't have car inspections. Airbags. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Airbags. Nothing like. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. There, I'm no, fully ranting. No, but, and I'm, no, but no, no, no. Like, I'm so here for it. Abby. No, no, no. <laughs> the thing that I find really interesting about your description and indeed like the interview with Kaldorf and Yi was that the way that they were talking about what interventions they found to be like more, you know, systematic or precision or more plausible, it 
it actually reminded me a lot of a conversation I, I listened to like with it was like three or four economists waxing poetic in about April about like how we could, you know, have a more, you know, nimble approach to, you know, sort of weighing the costs and benefits of um, a, a lockdown. And they're like, you know, sort of lamenting that, like, the United States government is all thumbs and no fingers. Ah. Um but like, you know, but the, but their whole idea was like, no, you know, all of this stuff that we could do for like, they didn't talk about social supports or economic supports at all. Nothing about what it would actually take to use like the fiscal authority of the state to like make make it possible to like do virus suppression. Of course, I was like, well, obviously they don't talk about any of that shit because they know fuck all about epidemiology. Right. These people could <laughs> they, they like they, they wouldn't know like the first thing about suppressing a fucking virus, but yet they're economists. So they presume to be able to speak for everything and everyone Mm -hmm. and they're health economists, which is even worse. Yeah. Um, so, but the, but like, and then thinking about like the, we had this conversation about Matt Iglesias, book, like one billion (laughs) Americans is like, what, what he claims is like the plausible thing that's like logistically like feasible to do. And what he thinks is a pipe dream and like a crazy crackpot scheme Mm -hmm. is just like so indicative. And it's, and I think it's what's really like funny to me is I don't know the, the, the phenomena you're talking about this sort of decoupling is even really specific to epidemiology, but epidemiology seems sort of symptomatic of yeah. this like mode of thought. And I, I don't even know how I would like describe what that mode of thought is. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's like, it's very, very common in, I mean, at least like from my own, it's been very common throughout like my education, right. Which has been in like biology, epidemiology, and like kind of the social sciences. So that kind of whole world, I think, I don't know. It feels it's like the McKinseyfication, (laughs) you know, like social science research or something. Um, I mean, we don't even have the right definite, like if you look at like Institute of Medicine reports, we don't have the right even definitions of disability and ways of studying disability statistics to even give like an accurate estimate of how many disabled inmates we have in the United States. Every single, um, estimate of that number conflicts with the other one because they each use a different system. If you look at like what the WHO says, you know, in terms of like how we should be studying this stuff, we just don't collect half of the data that would be required to implement something like a a age stratified or risk stratified uh, society. Because again, then like who is, you know, who is the, um, population that's more likely to have the diagnosis, to have the access to doctors, right? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. that is going to be the same population that they say, like, we are protecting with lockdowns, which is like the managerial class, which is a great, you know, it's a great straw man to point to. But frankly, in this instance, like, it's absolutely irrelevant, because every policy that they're recommending would still result in the same population being at inordinately more risk of catching COVID-19 and having bad complications, you know, it's literally, they, you know, they, they even suggest something that we talked about back in May. Um, Kaldorf says, um, compared to current efforts, there are several ways to better protect high risk people above 60. If those still in the workforce cannot work from home, they could be allowed to use social security for a temporary one year sabbatical. 
Phil, does that remind you of anything? Like, <laughs> you know, it's funny because there are a couple AEI uh-huh. uh, economists and Trump administration uh, CEA OMB people that uh, would probably love that argument. And what publication was this interview in again? Highlights, highlights for grad students. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a story in May that we covered in two episodes, actually, which was a about a report from. AEI, which is the American Enterprise Institute and the Hoover Institute, real legendary collab here, which proposed rather than extending financial relief to to households for the duration of the pandemic, that a way better idea was to give people a $5,000 advance against their social security benefits. So we'll give you 5K now if you promise to delay or reduce your benefits later. What the fuck? You know, because you can totally make an informed decision on that point during a pandemic when you might be evicted, but whatever. So this was called um, the Eagle Plan, which um, which was floated and apparently on the table in May. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about that, I think it was uh, Aging Empire and No More Heroes. Like we literally had two back to back episodes yeah. about it. It required two episodes. It was so oh bad. Oh my God. Oh my yeah. God. It's, this is the type of like, you know, eugenics is endemic in our public health system, in public policy, right? And so there are so many assumptions that that people like, like Kolderf takes that just are not actually applicable to the United States. Like he is, he is uh, native to Sweden, but I guess he lives <laughs> in Boston because he teach, I don't know, where do Harvard professors live? They live everywhere, right? Like who cares? Um, yeah, well, they can live everywhere because Harvard is, uh, I'm pretty sure Harvard is all remote this semester. God. Of course. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And it doesn't have to worry about that really screwing with its revenues because it's <laughs> Harvard. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Yes. This stuff is so yeah, funny. So there's like, I kind of want to flag this, like this point about Sweden because, and you know, oh, if, this please is, do. if this is not relevant and I'm going on a tangent. You can please no. stop me, but um, no need to qualify. You know, this Kolderf in the interview, I think it's him because, you know, he's talking about Sweden. He kind of there's a point in the interview where he kind of hand waves and is like, oh, yeah, like Sweden's per capita death rate from COVID is like really high <laughs> compared to like other European countries. And it's like even, you know, pretty high, you know, compared to the United States. Um like as but on a, the other hand, yeah, but on the other hand, then he says, you know, well, but oh, but you can't look at you can't really look at death rate because, you know, you can't look at case fatality because it just doesn't give you the same picture as infection fatality, which I kind of want to flag the difference between those. And if this is like too technical, no, um, no, 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 please we, tell us we don't have to go there. But like, I think that, you know, this like hand waving and saying like, oh, well, instead of case fatality, you know, we really need to look at infection fatality has like political implication like there's an agenda behind saying this Mm. and he doesn't you know explicitly get into it and the interviewer doesn't really flag it um so like epidemiology is really like a denominators game (laughs) like I remember when I first started studying epi I was like oh it's all just like fractions like it's all just like manipulating different fractions (laughs) um and so the case fatality rate is like the number of deaths divided by the number of confirmed cases So you can imagine, you know, in a country like the United States, where testing has been so fucked up, right, right, and terrible, we're probably not catching a lot of people that really are infected with COVID, right? And so it's possible that like, the case fatality rate could look 
a little misleading, you know, and be a little higher than it really is because we're not, you know, that denominator of confirmed cases isn't capturing everybody who is like truly a case. Right. I think there's also been, you know, I've like read some reporting, you know, it, there seems to be evidence that there is underreporting of deaths from COVID as well. Yeah. So I'm not sure how that would affect it. Okay. Yeah. So that's case <laughs> fatality. Infection fatality is the number of deaths over the total number of people who are infected with the virus. And so you can't really get like a great um, estimate of the infection fatality rate unless you are like basically universally testing right. everyone, right? Like capturing everyone. And it seems to me that like a lot of this argument about, you know, well, we just need to get to herd immunity is resting on the idea that, or the, you know, I think it's like a wishful belief that a lot more people have been infected with COVID in, you know, for example, Sweden or the United States than really have. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, they want to say, oh, well, you know, the case fatality rate, like it's, it's lower, you know, than the infection fatality, the infection fatality, we can't really get a good estimate of in the U.S., but then they kind of jump to like, oh, well, but, you know, tons of people are asymptomatic. So it could be that, you know, everyone has already had this. Wishful and, you know, thinking. We're only seeing the people that are getting really sick. But, you know, the Swedish authorities, like I remember they predicted that they would have like 40 percent, you know, immunity basically in Sweden by May. And like the last thing I read, OK, there was an article in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine which I didn't, you know, I didn't read um, very, very closely. So, you know, I can't say that I have evaluated every claim in this paper, but their most recent seroprevalence estimate for Sweden as of August of 2020 was around 15%, right? So like- yeah. getting towards like, herd immunity. Yeah, it? like really, like definitely getting there. And like, I know that like, the rate of transmission is only partially kind of like a biological feature of the virus. But the estimates that I've read is like that with the rate of transmission that COVID seems to have, like they seem to be converging on like an R naught of around three, you know, like estimates for how, how that's pretty high, how well this can spread. Yeah. So like what I've, what I've read is that like you would need about 70% of the population to have immunity in order to have herd immunity for COVID. So like the herd immunity threshold is different for different infectious diseases. Um, but like, you know, so Sweden is nowhere even close, but like, just, just like slipping that in there and being like, Oh, well, <laughs> you know, just look at the, just look at the infection <laughs> fatality. Like I'm sure that denominator is like actually way huger than we have any you know, than we even know. And like, it just looks really overblown because all we're seeing is the number of deaths divided by the number of confirmed cases. Like, I think that is like a really specious argument that is not borne out by the evidence. Mm -mm. And like, I wish that the interviewer had kind of picked up on that because I was like, oh, I see what you're doing there. And it's the same thing that um, like the Stanford group that got in a bunch of trouble <laughs> a few months ago, mm -hmm. you know, like that's kind of like, I feel like that's where they were going with their seroprevalence studies was like, they were trying to demonstrate like, oh, everyone's already had this and it's fine. So like, you know, th this study is paid for by like the CEO of JetBlue or whatever. Right. And it's right. showing that everyone's already had this and it's fine to fly JetBlue, like <laughs> enjoy your peanuts. Um, no, so no, I mean, what this also ignores is the, you know, it's, it's fine to talk about the rate of like, you know, how fast the virus can like reproduce itself within society. Um, and it's fine to talk about these different principles that they point out that's saying like, oh, well, you know, every, um, every virus has a different herd immunity rate. It could be 
40%. It could be 60. We really don't know. And yeah, that's true. We really don't know. But I'll tell you what we do know. We do know that if you are indoors in a poorly ventilated space for 15 minutes with someone who is positive, your likelihood of of like being infected with the virus, which is called SARS-CoV-2, um, is quite high. And it's likely that at that point you will probably develop the disease, which is called COVID-19. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we were being smart about this, if our political economy is one centered around health as being the like foundational principle of need to drive capitalism forward, which if capitalism were smart, that's what it would do because it does need people to be healthy in order to go to work, right? Minimally healthy. Right. <laughs> Minimally healthy. You know. Fit and working again, then, as Mark yeah, e. Smith then saying. we know, right? We know some things about this virus. Not everything is known. We know what increases the likelihood of transmission. And the right. absolutely ignorant thing to do is to move forward with any public health directives that ignores that as a basic fact. And that is what this does. Right. More transmission means more sickness, more deaths, and more, you know, long-term disability and consequences, you know, as a result of this infection. And every single one of those, you know, like we've been talking about rates, (laughs) you know, like deaths per population and, you know, things like that. Every single one of those deaths is a fucking person. Thank you. You know, yeah. like there is right. no, like the absolute numbers matter too. Every single one of those deaths is a person. Every single one of those cases is a person. And preventing those cases matters. And the fact that, you know, we are seven months into this, like every, every case of COVID-19 is a choice. Every death from COVID-19 is a choice that we are making, right? Like we are as a society making an affirmative choice that like these people's lives are sacrificable. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think that, I don't think that that is consonant with the mission of public health, right? Like, and I think that public health is accountable to the public, like not to, I don't know. I That's the thing. I don't know who these interviewees are thinking that they're accountable to. Like capitalism. To their own careers, maybe. Yeah. Like, not not the public to the reproduction of capital yeah (laughs) Yeah. because they have eked out whatever little corner that they have and they are fine and they're not concerned about anyone more vulnerable than they are because their needs are met so they're you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i think it's a certain point in the development of a profession you, you no longer have to justify yourself or what you do or the value of it or its moral authority to anyone yes and and I think that like when people say like oh, when people lament the oh, how unfortunate it is that people don't trust science and scientists. This is fucking why who the fuck would? this kind of shit is the reason why who the fu- like who the fuck would, you know, right. who the fuck would trust these experts? <laughs> you know, I'm serious. Too many like, people. And unfortunately. I, you know, I want to be clear that like this, the the um, viewpoint that is that was advanced in this interview I mean, it is it is a right wing viewpoint to its core, but it's dishonest about what it is, which is annoying. But I want to be like clear that this does not reflect consensus in, you know, like the the public health community. Right. Like, I do not think this is a consensus position among epidemiologists. And there are a lot of like really, really good epidemiologists who are doing good communication around this and are like trying, you know, despite our public health system being like gutted and fractured, you know, and underfunded and terrible, you know, like are trying 
to do, you know, what I would consider the right thing. So like, I don't think this is a consensus position. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, like you can see, you can see the soil that it has kind of grown out of, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, that's the soil that like, we're all growing in like as scientists. And like, some of us are maybe more aware of that. And some of us are less aware of that. Um, but yeah, this is like, I guess just like the fetishization of expertise is like very, very, um, dangerous, I think. And there are, you know, there are like great epidemiologists out there, you know, who are on Twitter, who are, you know, working in local, you know, health departments, state health departments, things like that. Um, but just the fact that your expertise, like your, your position can get you into, a position where you can advance things like this and like people will take you seriously just because of your like affiliations and your credentials is like very frightening Mm -hmm. to me i mean it's the danger is not this interview being published in jacobin the the danger is this is this sort of like whatever the origins of this uh particular analysis and even whatever its merits i mean like why you know in one sense like, I don't know, maybe there's some nuances that I'm failing to appreciate. I don't, no, I don't, I don't think, think there so. Are, but let's just say, let's just say that there are. We could be charitable there are. for a second. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not even about being charitable. It's just like doing the what if, which is like, okay, what if there was some grain of truth here, you know, or something that I'm, I'm missing or like understating the ability to appropriate this. Cause like what they emphasize over and over again, what like Kaldorf says is like, this is not a letter. We don't advocate a letter rip. <laughs> strategy like what we would want is they have their sort of fantasy world of what you were saying about like risk risk sort of evaluation and and sort of you know sequestration and and things like that mm-hmm. right but like even if you believe that was a good idea which i don't uh that that's not how people are going to use this they're going to take no. this and run with it and say hey you know what florida georgia y'all doing the right thing and like, let's just keep doing that. Yeah. Um, let's just keep killing people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this sort of like framing that they make, Phil, that you point out, I think is really important because they do specifically address the fact that, you know, almost uh, reminiscent of the sort of uh, complaints you see online demanding decency in the face of the <laughs> cancel culture debate. Um, you know, they're like, listen, uh, the word herd immunity has a negative connotation right now. And herd immunity did nothing wrong. And all types of herd immunity matter. So really, you know, everyone needs to stop, you know, mischaracterizing a plan for herd immunity as a letter rip strategy. Well, I'm sorry, that fundamentally misunderstands how infectious diseases work. Um, yeah. From a logistical it- standpoint. <laughs> Yeah. So at one point, I think it's Kaldorf yeah. <laughs> says, someone says in the interview, like, uh, like there's, there's real toxicity like around herd immunity, but, uh, <laughs> you know, herd immunity is just a proven fact, like gravity, you know, like it's a scientifically proven phenomenon, like gravity. And it's like, okay, <sighs> but like how you get to herd immunity matters, right? Like it matters whether you let tons of people get sick versus if you like vaccinate everyone, right? right? Like the end goal of both of those things, you know, ideally is herd immunity, but like one of them takes a path through hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths and the other one doesn't. Right. Right. But he just skips to like, oh, well, you don't see people arguing against gravity. And it's like, "Mm, 
I don't know about that. I mean, I think also another claim that's worth addressing is sort of their claim that um, that lockdowns cause fear and panic. And that in and of itself is sort of in their mind, like a, a negative, like social determinant of health that will result in, as they frame it, so many cancer deaths and so many lost screening opportunities, which in, in my mind, like obviously rings some like health finance argument bells because like. <laughs> you know, what better way to prevent something like an American NHS than um, trying to, like, keep uh, any sort of fiscal stimulus to, like, hospitals and physician groups within the private sector, right, through individual actors making sure to get their regular cancer screenings. But I think that, too, that sort of threat of the the unknown known of all the diseases we're going to be missing because we... Um, are doing a lockdown fails to like address what is actually like the problem, which is how do you maintain primary care under like an epidemic? And that in and, right. in and of itself is a very difficult problem that like we need to be working on. And I, I think people ask me often like, well, what can I use as a principle to like evaluate things that I read about COVID? Because so much of it is specialist. So much of it is, you know, and, and based on, on, um, on just people within the profession sort of agreeing or that being sort of our best guess at the time. So it is difficult as a like person right, as an individual to evaluate <laughs> this kind of information because it, it is confusing. And I, I say to those people that my number one rule is that with infectious diseases, there are no silver bullets. The answer is usually simple, but it's not like an easy thing. So if someone is proposing a quick fix, the likelihood, and I'm very, very firm about, you know, the definition of likely, probable, the likelihood in this scenario, <laughs> and I mean that literally, is that um, that person is arguing in bad faith and has ulterior motives and is like pushing for whatever reason or another, a silver bullet, magical thinking, pie in the sky concept that is more hinged in rhetoric and a political economy that has nothing to do with protecting people's lives. You know, yeah, and it's it's like it's very interesting because I don't, you know, I am not an expert about you know health policy or health finance or anything like that. I think it is, you know, it is definitely true that there are negative knock-on health effects of yeah, you know, avoiding the doctor, um, you know, of like missed screenings, even just of being, you know, iso you know, isolation is very, you know harmful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that is all, that is all true, but that is an argument for doing pandemic response appropriately. Right. Right. Not an argument for not doing it. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I just don't understand what, like, I don't understand how it follows from the fact that like, oh yeah, being, you know, being locked up in your, in your house for months is like really bad for your mental health. It's like, really dangerous for people that are living in home situations that, you know, like are maybe violent or abusive. Um, you know, it's causing people to delay, you know, preventive medical care that they would otherwise get. That stuff is all true. But if anything, you know, I feel like that would be an argument for like a real lockdown with viral suppression and in the support. United States as its goal. Right. With social support right? There's nothing because we're not locked down, right? Like a lot of things are open, mm -hmm. whatever. And what we're seeing is like sustained high viral transmission. And like, it's just dragging 
this process out, right? And so people, instead of going, you know, eight weeks without, you know, being able to go to the doctor or the dentist, you know, or eight weeks having to be basically at home and, you know, not, you know, going to the grocery store or, you know, the post office or whatever, you know, instead of that, now we've had seven months of this like hybrid situation, right? That's like very, I would say like deleterious to people's mental and physical health with no end in sight, right? Like, because we won't commit to doing what it would actually take to make it safe to return to normal life. And so we have this kind of like in between this kind of like nauseating simulacrum of like a normal, Mm -hmm. you know, or a a pre-COVID normal where tons of people are still, you know, falling ill and, and dying from this virus. And so, you know, like, I just don't understand like this, what we're doing now is closer to Sweden's, you know, herd immunity strategy than it is to like a full lockdown, like in somewhere like New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just, I don't understand this argument that like, well, we have to, you know, we have to go even more full throttle on reopening everything because it's so harmful to people to be at home. The beatings will continue until morale improves. (laughs) Yeah. It's like we've reached this like terrible, like equilibrium Mm -hmm. that, you know, (laughs) Clearly, you know, Congress, everyone with power to change any of this is fine with, and we just have to live with it. And it's like, well, I think this is like pretty deleterious to people's, yeah, long-term health, Mm -hmm. right? Like ability to get preventive care, mental health, you know, whatever. So it's, it's all too familiar too. like, if you, if you, one thing we talk about a lot on the show is how, um, our political economy tries to respond to the needs of like the elderly and disabled. And and we've talked a lot about these loneliness initiatives trying, like when these Medicare advantage companies who are privatizing Medicare try to figure out a way to eke out a little bit of profit while addressing the very real needs of like seniors being sort of in what we would consider now sort of quasi pandemic lockdown uh, conditions of being isolated, having, you know, difficult accessing family, being lonely and the sort of knock on physiological effects of isolation. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. um, we see these kinds of proposals, which are like just as ridiculous as, um, frankly, like anything that, that Kulldorff is, is proposing himself, you know, which are like, oh, well, we'll, we'll do like Uber for seniors where like seniors can get on an app and teens will come to their home to keep them company. Like, like rent, rent a grandchild, like, Oh, perfect. Good to go. We're great to go. Like, can't we just do like an app for, for COVID that, you know, isn't that like a Tim and Eric sketch, like my new pet pep or something? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's really too bad that Venture Brothers just got canceled because I feel like Kaldorf could be a perfect um, super scientist villain, oh. you know, Kildorf. Oh, Kaldorf's definitely, he's definitely uh, in the guild. Yeah. Definitely in the guild. Well, I mean, I know I appreciate your takes on this because it's it is helpful to I think also like, you know, these are your I'm sorry, but these are your peers in a way um, in a broader sense. And and so it's helpful to sort of hear from other voices within epidemiology, um, because I think, you know, if if these are the only people who are allowed to speak, then the discipline as a whole will get a very bad rap, in my opinion, uh, after the duration of COVID, because history will not look back kindly on people who advocated for strategies like this after this is all 
said and done, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, you can already tell like my like biggest fear and also well, not my biggest fear, but a fear that I have. And also something that I feel quite certain is going to happen is that, you know, three, five, 10 years from now, like, no, like we're going to kind of retcon. And I, I don't know if I'm using that word correctly. Like we're going to retcon the story of COVID-19 into, you know, a story of, you know, the triumph of <laughs> Americans and, you know, science and whatever, you know, like no one is going to cop to having endorsed viewpoints like this mm-hmm. in like a few years time. Um, but like, we're also going to turn this whole story into like a success story, which I think it definitely is not. And there, I don't know, like, I would love for there to be some like real accountability for Hell yeah. um, people who advance viewpoints like this. And, you know, I mean, I don't mean anything bad, but like, you know, maybe you don't get that speaking gig if you're advocating for like killing everyone's grandparents. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. maybe we don't need to hear your TED Med talk or whatever. Maybe um, advocating for eugenics could invalidate tenure. I don't yeah, know. I mean, I hope that tenure as a, as, well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a post-tenure like a project, thing. Abby, to critique yeah, tenure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just, uh, there is like, no, it's upsetting that there is going to be like no consequence whatsoever for advancing viewpoints like this. And there's going to be really no consequence whatsoever for like what has happened, um, to like our public health infrastructure, right? Like our public health schools Mm -hmm. in this country over the past, you know, like several decades, like we just don't have, you know, we don't have the resources, um, to really like, you know, like the, you know, local public health departments are super underfunded, you know, like the CDC is cut in every budget cycle, like pandemic response plans were dismantled, I think, like under the Trump administration, like there's, there's a real sense, which I mean, it's, it's, it sounds really um, wild, but there is like a real sense in public health. And I think this is finally starting to erode somewhat, like, because of everything that's happening around COVID, but there's like a real sense, like, oh my gosh, you know, like public health, like just science, just the facts, please. (laughs) You know, like we're, we're only, you know, we only answer to, you know, the science and the data and like the politics is just going to stay out of it. But it's like, public health is not like physics. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like public health is like fundamentally implicated in these structures of how we, you know, deliver care, respond to pandemics, like fund our public health infrastructure, fund our universities, right? Like to study and implement, you know, um, public health programs, like the very idea that like public health can be apolitical is, I think, ridiculous. But I think that a lot of the field has labored under that assumption for a very, very long time, as you know, four decades of like neoliberal austerity have like pulled like the Jenga blocks out <laughs> from under it. And now this is like an, an extremely mixed metaphor, but like now we're just like wily coyote <laughs> run off the cliff. And we're, like, yes. You know, like our little feet are just like spinning in the air. And we're like, oh my God, how did we, you know, how did this happen? How did we get here? And it's like, well, you know, like we haven't considered any of this to be properly our concern for a very long time. And like, you see what happened, like, Yeah, you know, like our our COVID response is a disaster. Like it is, it's embarrassing. Like it's, and it's horrible. It's resulting in you know 
we've surpassed 200,000 deaths. I read the other day that COVID is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Like this, I, this is like, this is a choice. This is a, maybe a culmination of a lot of choices that were made by a lot of very like disparate actors, right? Like diffused throughout kind of like the economic and political structure of the country. But like, we, you know, we, this is the future that we chose. And it's really, it's fucking sad. Yeah. I, you know, I just, it makes me feel really um, despondent, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Maybe as a final parting note, um, I just want to <laughs> alert the listeners to someone else who should also not be believed in this um, arena and their takes on herd immunity should be ignored. And it's someone who uh, Dr. Kildrick keeps citing, um, whose name is Dr. Sunetra Gupta. So in, in a lot of uh, Kildorf's like, sorry, Kildorf's <laughs> Um, in a lot of Kaldorf's appearances and a lot of the letters and op-ed stuff that he's been writing, he's been citing her. And, um, she, uh, also sort of, uh, is an advocate of this dangerous eugenic, uh, class reductionist herd immunity strategy, um, which again runs counter to prevailing health logic. Um, and she is what's called a theoretical epidemiologist at Oxford, which sounds pretty, like a pretty cool, um, purview but her interviews kind of read like a round table between like Camille Paglia and JK Rowling if you're asking them about their ideas about like gender identity <laughs> Fucking yikes yeah so I just want to leave everyone with my favorite quote from an inter interview that she did for like a, a weird British magazine that he keeps citing um she says that's the axis of disease but then there's the socioeconomic axis which has been ignored and then there's a third aesthetic access uh, which is about how we want to live our lives we are closing ourselves off not just to the disease but to other aspects of being human and yes you did not uh, mishear me i said access access and access because that's actually what she said access to being human yeah access to affordable being human. access uh -huh. to being human you can still go to like buffalo wild wings you know like <laughs> in like most parts of this country like you can still go to restaurants like i don't get this <sighs> yeah i'm gonna be inside for a long time aren't i <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh god abby thank you so much for joining us this has been it great. has been so much yeah, fun thank you um thank you this was really fun where can people find you on twitter uh my twitter handle is abby c science all one word um highly recommend. don't say Please don't say mean things to me. <laughs> I can't. I can't handle it. No, I'm um, but yeah, that's where you can. That's where you can find me. I'm around. Well, and um, I mean, I think you you put it well the other day when you said there is a second part to the uh, the phrase of "mourn the dead," which is "fight like hell for the living." Yeah, we're only. So I think that's a. We're oh, only yeah. as we're only as safe as the least safe person among us. So you know, solidarity forever. <laughs> hell yeah. Um, Hell and yeah. with that, I'll just go ahead and wrap us out. Listeners, if you'd like to support the show, become a patron, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get access to Monday's bonus episode. We do it twice a week. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, you also get a discount on merch. So become a patron. We'll see you next time. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Again, walk down the road in the sun. I make a patch of.
Cool. All right, let's do it. Uh, do we do we have a little warm up? Should we make any jokes? Uh, no, I don't know. What kind of jokes would you want to make? <laughs> should we talk? If should we talk just Already, like a? Like the, like the fu- that was just like the funny. What kind of jokes would you want to make? <laughs> jokes uh, should knock knock. We're so, we're so natural. This is perfect. Yeah. Um, uh, after. 188 episodes we got it we got it down to a science should we speak briefly about the uh the the big news which is everyone on uh constitutional crisis watch oh (laughs) the uh the peaceful transfer of power yeah yeah (laughs) mostly because i don't want to talk about how fucking upset the brianna taylor uh court decision makes me but Mm, yeah appalling they can do anything in this country now always have it's almost like it's almost like they've been doing anything (laughs) all along as it turns out it's just reaffirmation over and over again it's just like yep oh were you worried about your ability to 
assassinate people. Yeah, right. in their beds. Yeah. Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore. We can assassinate people. Always remember that the peaceful transfer of power is a norm and not a guarantee, <laughs> etc. Um, you know, uh, not yeah. not enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Just uh, just just uh, an implicit an implicit right. What are to, rights really? It's also a totally a two way street. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> like all norms, it's a two way street. Right. <laughs> 